Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you this morning. For those joining us online, a special welcome to you from wherever you happen to be joining us from in the world today. My name is Wade. I'm the teaching pastor at Rexdale Alliance Church. And over the last uh, little while, we've been looking into the book of Acts, and we're continuing that series today. Last weekend, we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit at a time called Pentecost. We talked about the fact that Jesus had given his disciples these instructions to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come on them with power. And that if there's one word that's associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit, if that word power. And we saw last weekend how they really did, these first followers of Jesus, really did move with power in the society in which God had placed them. And there's this launch of the church and the Holy Spirit comes with wind and fire and these demonstrations of miracles. And all of these things pointing to the fact that God was keeping his promise to redeem people and make things new. Well, part of the events of this Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came on those gathered in Jesus' name, is that one of the apostles, one of the leaders of the time, a man named Peter, was compelled to stand up and preach before a crowd. You see, everyone knew that something odd was going on. The tongues of fire, the wind blowing inside a house, all these people only from Galilee speaking languages from all over the known world. There had to be an explanation for this. And so Peter took the opportunity under the inspiration of the Spirit to tell people what was going on before them and to preach the truth of God to them. So we're going to be starting in Acts 2, verse 32. And we're going to be through the Bible a little bit today, so I encourage you. I usually say get your own Bible out, but I encourage you, just follow along on the screen. There's a number of places we're going to be today, but if you do want to be in your Bible, Acts 2.32 is where we're starting today. And we're jumping into the middle of what Peter is talking about here. So he's been preaching for a little bit, and in verse 32 of Acts 2, he says this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. So he starts with the resurrection. You're looking at people who can testify, yes, Jesus died, but now he's risen again. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So he's giving that explanation for what the crowd is seeing. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's a plain historical fact, whether uh, Christian historians or secular historians, it is a historical fact that Christianity just spread explosively across the early Roman Empire. The facts are just overwhelming about the massive impact that early Christianity had. But the question that many wrestle with is this, is why? What made Christianity spread like wildfire across across the world in the first century? 
I mean, why, considering Christianity started with this ragtag group of uneducated people with no power, no money, no influence, why did this way, when it was competing with dozens and scores of other philosophies and political movements and other religions, why did this way, the way of Jesus, not just succeed in the Roman Empire, but absolutely swept it completely and entirely? Why did it do that? How could it have done that? Author and pastor Tim Keller, some of you have heard of him, in summarizing some research, he points out three main factors that historians point to as, as key factors for the unprecedented movement of Jesus through the first church. First of all, I'm going to give you a few of them. First of all, historians note, Christians died better than everybody else. Kind of an odd thing, but that's what they point to. Historians said Christians died so well. I mean, when they were put in the arena with the lions coming after them, they were singing and they were smiling and they were praising God and they were hugging each other. I mean, they're in the arena because they're followers of Jesus. And the Roman Empire is trying to stamp out this way of Jesus. They don't want it. And so they think, the Roman Empire thinks, we want to get rid of the Christians. We want to get rid of Christianity, just get rid of Christians. And yet every time they killed them, it would like produce more of them. And to a great degree, one of the reasons Christianity spread like it did was that people had never seen anyone face death like that. They'd never seen anyone with that kind of peace and joy about their own death. Secondly, historians point out that the people of Jesus were radically inclusive. Historians said said that up until Christianity, religions always divided people into groups and into castes. If you think about this, you'll see it. You know, a particular religion was always geared towards a certain region or a certain race or a certain class. For example, if you and your people lived in the mountains, you had your mountain God. But other people who lived down by the ocean, you had your ocean God. Religions had to do with certain regions or they may have to do with a certain race or a certain culture. Or else it appealed really to just one class. You need to think about many of the what we call mystery religions and certainly Greek philosophy. It really only appealed to the highly educated. You had to be really educated and super smart to enjoy it at all or to understand it or to make it a philosophy of your life. Every religion until Christianity tended to divide people. And the amazing thing about Christianity, how it began, was how utterly inclusive it was. It took royalty and it took the slaves and it put them at the table together and called them brothers and sisters. Another thing historians said about this inclusiveness was that before Christianity came along, women were always second class citizens in every single faith. But if you really read carefully, you'll see the Apostle Paul through his writings in the New Testament continually in the New Testament having to deal with the fact that communities surrounding the early churches were troubled by the fact that women were partners in ministry and incredibly gifted in all sorts of ways. Christianity was incredibly inclusive and the world had no idea what to do with it. Thirdly, though, not only did they die better than everybody else, not only did they include everyone, but lastly, they cared for everybody. We have some amazing documents from Roman emperors of those early days stating that Christianity was spreading because it cared for all the poor. There's an emperor named Julian. At one point, he wrote a letter to a friend. He's troubled by all this Christian movement stuff. And he says this, 
Emperor Julian, around the year 300, he says, we can't stop these Christians. Everyone looks after their own, but these Christians take care of them all. They alone show exemplary kindness to strangers. Think about that. An emperor in Rome has to take stock of what's going on. And he thinks, I think I know what it is about these Christians. They're really kind to everybody. And it troubles us. Imagine that. So kind. We don't like that. Christians care for them all. They give their money away. And they live simple lifestyles. They care, for every, they care better than everybody else. They're dying better than everybody else. And they include everyone better than anybody else could. So that's what Christians did. But it still doesn't tell us why they did it. You know, one of the historians that Keller points out puts it this way. The secular historian, Kenneth Scott Latterette, says this. He says, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. Again, his secular historian making this, this uh, look. He says, it is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Without it, the future course of the religion is inexplicable. Why this occurred may lie outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. Modern historians aren't supposed to move in the places where we talk about energy unequaled in history being poured out on people. They can't. They can't go there. That's all right. But we can. Because the book of Acts tells us exactly what that incredible release of energy was, and it was the Holy Spirit of God coming upon ordinary people like you and me with power. That's what did it. And I want to share with you one of the amazing things that happened with the coming of the Holy Spirit in relation to people hearing the good news about Jesus. In our text for today, it says that when people heard what Peter was saying, did you catch that phrase? And they were cut to the heart. Did you see that? It says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they did not say, well, that's interesting. They didn't add up the pluses and minuses or get together in a little group and say, let's list out the pros and cons of what Peter has talked about here today. They didn't say anything about coming back to a class tomorrow. They didn't do that. There was something more to it. Because all the other, all the other religions were interesting. All other religions had points. But it says these people were cut to the heart. That is, they experienced a deep, deep conviction spiritually. Why were 3,000 people brought into the kingdom that day? It's not because Peter was a particularly good speaker. It was because they were cut to the heart by the Spirit of God. And that's what I want us to consider in our service here together this morning. What does it mean to be cut to the heart? Or truly convicted by the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And I want us to look at it in two ways. If you want something to write with, I encourage you to take some notes as we walk through this. We're going to look at this in two ways. First... What cuts us to the heart? And what is it? What's happening when we get cut to the heart? And secondly, what's the result of when people are cut to the heart? That is, experience the deep, loving conviction at the core, at the center of your life. Let's walk through this together. What cuts us to the heart? Well, consider this. What happened in Acts 2? What are the people listening to Peter cut to the heart over? What is it that they're cut to the heart about? What's this? The Holy Spirit convicts them about the death of Jesus. That's what cut them to the heart. They're cut by the truth. 
It's in verse 36. This is at the end where, where Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, there's a hit, both Lord and Messiah. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? It's that statement, you crucified him, that cut them to the heart. Let's dive into that for a moment. People have in the past, I just want to spend a second on this, have twisted this and they say, ah, you know what? I know what this verse is teaching. This verse is teaching that the Jews are guilty of having killed Jesus. People have used this for anti-Semitic purposes for years, all over the place. Now here's Peter saying, here Peter's saying what people often say. See, Peter's saying the Jews killed Jesus. That's what he's saying. But that's not at all what Peter is saying. And that can't be the point. First of all, when he says, you crucified him, Peter knows exactly who he's talking to. This sermon of Peter is happening 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. Not only that, if you go back into Acts 2, because it was this time of the festival, there were people from all over the known world there. There were people from every nation around the Mediterranean. That's the reason why when the apostles and the leaders spoke in tongues, people really needed to hear a miracle, to hear the gospel, because they were hearing the good news of Jesus in their own language. But here's the point. Peter knew most of the people that he was talking to were not there when Jesus was crucified. Acts 2 tells us that most of the people were not present at Jesus' crucifixion. Not only that, probably the people who were there, most of them, in a sense, were kind of passive bystanders. They just stood there and watched the crucifixion. So what is Peter after here? He says to them, you crucified Jesus. And most of them weren't even there for it. So what's he after? I'll tell you what he's after. When the Holy Spirit cuts me to the heart and convicts me of sin, I come face to face with this truth. I crucified Jesus. Let me show you the real reason we know that this is what Peter meant. And Peter knew it was true of him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell about a situation that's called Peter's denial. And they tell about how Peter, when Jesus was arrested, became so afraid for his own life. When people asked him, aren't you one of his group? Aren't you one of his followers? Peter was so afraid for his own skin that he continually denied Jesus. He kept saying, no, I'm not with him. I'm not associated with that man. I don't know him. I've never met him. You've got the wrong guy. But only Luke gives us this one little verse that I think is the whole key to this. In Luke 22, verses 61 and 62, we're told that the third time Peter says to, a, says to a crowd, I don't know that Jesus. And that verse says at that moment, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. It's the only one that says in the book of Luke, when the rooster crowed, the Lord looked straight at Peter. And it says, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He was cut to the heart. Do you know why? You see, at that point, what would the face of Jesus look like? I mean, it would have been purple. His face would have been bruised. He would have been beaten. His eyes would have been swollen shut. There wouldn't have just been blood streaming down, but there would have been mucus and spit all over his face and beard. And Peter saw Jesus look at him. 
And Peter saw Jesus dying because of him. Peter saw Jesus' life because of him being taken away. Peter saw his sins costing Jesus his life. Peter saw he had crucified. Peter saying when he talks to the crowd, you and me, we did this to Jesus. You too have crucified him. And this depth of conviction and being cut to the heart is absolutely critical. I mean, this is the difference right here between being religious and being a Christian or follower of Jesus. Why? Because before you're cut to the heart, you can understand in your mind that you've broken God's rules. After you're cut to the heart, you realize that your sins have broken God's heart. You know, I'm not saying you don't realize you haven't broken God's rules. You do realize that, but there's a difference. Before you've been spiritually convicted, you see sin as primarily breaking God's rules. After you're cut to the heart by the truth of Jesus' death, you see sin as something that breaks God's heart. It's two different kinds of conviction. The old conviction made you say, I've broken that. The new conviction says, I've broken him. The old conviction said, I'd better do the right thing or he's going to get me. And so you coerce your will. The new conviction says, look at what he's done for me and I had no idea it cost him so much. And it melts the heart. Two completely different things, two completely different ways to go. A Christian is somebody who says, I had no idea until this moment what he had done for me. How in the world can I go on living life my own way? How can I treat him sometimes, even as I, I have sometimes, as an enemy who's against me? I can't. What must I do? That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to be cut to the heart. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, They will look upon the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son. And that right there, friends, is what turns into spiritual power. Being cut to the heart. By the death of Jesus and the realization that I did that. Now somebody is saying, wait, I don't follow because I don't see how this becomes spiritual power. I mean, it's kind of interesting. It might be kind of moving, but really it's kind of discouraging. If I thought I'd actually crucified Jesus, that doesn't make me feel powerful. It makes me feel terrible. Now before you go too far with that thought, let me show you. I want to show you the results of being cut to the heart by the work of the Spirit. When we see what our sin does and Jesus' response to it, there's a few results of being cut to the heart by the Spirit. First of all, you get freedom from guilt. You get freedom from guilt. Do you know why? You get freedom in your conscience because the very thing that convicts convicts us is the thing that comforts us. You get freedom from guilt. And somebody says, well, if I thought I had crucified Christ, like I said, I'd feel terrible. Well, it's not like that because here's how it works. I want you to imagine, we do this at least once a month when we do this with communion. We're supposed to remember the death of Jesus. So I want you to right now, in your mind, consider Jesus dying on the cross. Use your imagination, our sanctified imaginations. Look at Jesus dying on the cross. We're supposed to remember him there. And what does that tell you? Now we might say, well, it tells me I'm terribly sinful. Right. But not only that. It also tells you that his love for you is eternally strong. You know, the very same sight, Jesus on the cross, 
not only tells you that your sin is terrible, your sin is serious, it also tells you that you mean the world to him. You can't look at the cross and only let it tell you, only let it tell you about your sin. Why is he there? And you say, he died because of me. That's the conviction. And with the conviction comes the comfort. The same thing that convicts, comforts. Why is he up there? Because you mean the world to him. Because he will face anything to save you. Anything at all. He'll let nothing come between you and him. There's nothing you could possibly do. He gave up everything so he wouldn't lose you. When you look at his dying love, the very same thing that tells you you're a sinner also tells you that you are infinitely and perfectly loved. So you not only have freedom from guilt, because he's loving you perfectly, being merciful towards you, you have freedom in your conscience, but you can now be free from the power of sin. You know, I think there's some of us, I know this, walk with us, and I'm right in the same boat. There's some of us who have our, our whole lives been trying to get rid of certain problems, certain sins, and you've just never been able to, you feel powerless against it. You know, some of us are having trouble loving people who have become difficult to love. Some are having trouble with certain besetting habits. You just keep falling back into that same ditch again and again. Some are struggling with anger. And here's usually what we've done. What we say is this. I'd better obey God or else he's going to reject me because I broke the rule. Do you know what that does? When we approach obedience to God simply by saying, I'd better obey him or he'll reject me because I broke the, broke the rules. Here's what it does. That just bends, it bends temporarily the will away from that sin, but the heart still clings to it. When we say, I I better obey or he's going to reject me, it bends with willpower, temporarily the will away from the sin, but the heart still clings to it. Instead of saying, I'd better obey because he'll reject me, what if you look at him on the cross, look at him bearing anything for you? And what if you say, I need to obey because he won't reject me? Because at incredible cost, he did what was necessary so he would never have to reject me at all. You know, if I say I want to obey because he'll never reject me, that melts the heart. Because you see what he's doing for us. It doesn't just bend the will. It melts the heart completely. It's a permanent change because you look at him and you say, how in the world could I treat someone horribly who has done this for me? How could I displease him? How could I disobey him? Look at how perfectly he loves me. I'd do anything for him. Which leads to the last result, which is freedom from control. There's a group of people. It's cut to the heart. Deep spiritual conviction because they're they see that we're responsible with you, Peter. We're in. We see now. It was our sin that crucified Jesus. We get it. And they say, what shall we do? And you have to hear the tone of the question. This is really important. They're not saying, okay, now, Peter, uh, give us two or three steps so that we can feel better about ourselves because we're not liking this whole conviction business. In other words, at the end of the sermon, they don't say, okay, we'd like to become Christians. We'd like to follow Jesus. Could you tell me three, two or three things to do to put on my list? That's not what they're saying. What they're saying in what shall we do, it means this. We'll do anything. We'll do anything. That's what it means to make Jesus your Lord. It means to take all the conditions off of our obedience. 
when Peter tells them to repent and to be baptized. That word repent is to relinquish control, to turn from the direction you're going 180 degrees. I'm going this way and I'm cut to the heart because of the direction of my life. And so I turn and I go towards Jesus. He says, repent and be baptized, relinquish control, and then demonstrate submission to Christ through baptism. And in that, we're saying it's his way, not mine. He's Lord, I'm not. And there's no in-between on this. Either he's the master or I'm the master. Either he's the leader of my life or I'm the leader of my life. There's nothing in the middle. To be cut to the heart means that you've been convicted by the Spirit about lordship. It's about lordship. Here's what I found in my own life and as I've walked with people here and all around the world. You know what I found to be mostly true? Everybody wants a savior. Everybody wants to be saved from something. Everybody knows we're not okay. Everybody wants to, everybody needs to be saved and they know it. Everybody wants a savior. Nobody wants a Lord. God, take this bad feeling away from me. Take away the guilt. Take away the nastiness. But once that's gone, whew, now I can just go do what I want. Everybody wants a Savior. Nobody wants a Lord. Unless you've been cut to the heart by the spirit of conviction. And He shows you what our sin has done. And sets us free from it. And we come under the Lordship of Christ. Most of the Spirit's work in your life and my life is a work of the conviction of Lordship. Most of it is. Most of it sits in the arena of lordship. And unless we've been cut to the heart by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we'll never surrender and submit to his lordship. And one more thing. Is that people were added to the church that day. Do you know what that means? It means that you can become a Christian today. You can choose to follow Jesus today. You notice it didn't say, well, they went through this long process. No, not at all, because here's what the early church had figured out. And I think we've gotten it backwards in some ways. You see, when we're talking to people, when we think about coming into faith or coming into the church, we talk about people getting saved. So we need to, we need to get saved, and then we figure out the lordship piece. I mean, that's sometimes what we tell people. You know, pray the prayer, make sure you get your ticket to heaven. And you know this whole other deal about lordship, get, get that figured out. You know what the early church's message was? Get lordship established, and you will discover yourself miraculously saved. Figure out who you need as Lord, and who will be your Lord, and you will find yourself saved if you choose Jesus for your Lord. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying you can do this today. In repentance, when you say, I know I've been going this way, acknowledge the depth of my sin, but in one turn towards Jesus and declaring Him as Lord and leader of my life, I discover that as Him as Lord, I am saved. I am redeemed and I am set free from the power of sin. Because being a Christian is not about what you give to God. It's about responding to the Holy Spirit when you feel the message of the gospel cutting you to the heart. When you know God is working on your heart, it's an invitation to repent and surrender your life into his hands. And you relinquish control. And when you do, he forgives you and restores you and fills you with his Holy Spirit. And you can do that today. 
I don't know where you are in this, in the room, joining us online. Maybe you've never done that before today, but today, I'm telling you friends, today can be your day. Today can be your day to say, I'm going to repent. And that's not a real popular word now, but we need that word. We need that word repent because it speaks to a cutting of the heart that leads to a turning in repentance to Jesus Christ. And if you've been trying to work out the salvation thing, you've been trying to work out, well, how do I get saved and how do I get into heaven? And you have never talked about the Lordship piece. That's your deal today. Let's get that figured out. And if you've never done that today, you can make a declaration and say, Jesus, I acknowledge the depth of my sin. I know that my sin is only against you. And so I turn and I come to you. God set me free. But you know, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but some habits have started to take over. And you're realizing that there's some those besetting habits of taking control of your life again. And today is your day to invite the Holy Spirit of God to convict you again and to cut you to the heart with the good news of Jesus. And with that conviction comes the comfort. And friends, I'm telling you, in the church, if there's one thing that we have constantly got to be repenting of, we need to be repenting of our control. It's time to surrender control and be set free. Now, the person talking to you today, I mean, I am like a card-carrying, in-the-membership-club control freak. I am. Like, I got the T-shirt and the club and the whole thing. That's me. I want to get my hands on stuff and fix it because there's a lot of times in my life where I believe in my head that I can do it better than God. And that's just the truth about me. You see, because the opposite of faith, sometimes we think the opposite of faith is doubt. You know what the opposite of faith for me is? Panic. The opposite of faith is panic. Because when I panic, I'm in a situation, there's a relational thing, I've got to get my hands on it and control it. Because God, I know you created the universe, I know you do a lot of things well, but I really think with my finite wisdom and understanding, I can do a better job of repairing this. Because I'll probably do it quicker. And that's always better, right? When it's done faster. And so I panic and I take control. And what God is doing in my life these days is he's pointing out the areas of control and he's saying, Wade, I want this area of control to come under my lordship, not yours. And that's the way of discipleship. And for followers of Jesus, we can get this messed up so often sometimes because we're walking with Jesus. We're part of the church. And yet control issues still beset our hearts. And today, I think God wants to set us free from some of that. You know, it was ordinary people coming under the conviction of the Spirit and then living that life of power that turned the world upside down in the first century. And my prayer this week is, God, let it happen again, like right now in us. As they died better, as they were radically inclusive, as they cared for all, the only reason they could do it is they were a people cut to the heart. They got lordship figured out and lived the way of Jesus boldly, passionately, radically, not hindered by anything. And God's offer to us today is the very same. Would you pray with me? Ramon, would you come for a second? We're going to take a few moments, and I want you to consider which we do many weekends. Just consider what it is that the Holy Spirit is saying to you. This is your time. This is your space. Take a deep breath and simply settle in. What is it that the Holy Spirit of God is saying to your heart? Are you being cut to the heart by anything?
I believe one of the things that God is doing in this church this weekend is he's awakening us to a posture and a spirit of repentance to say, I'm done having control. And this is for those who have yet to follow Jesus and those of us who have been following Jesus maybe even a long time. There's some stuff we've got to repent of and primarily I think it's in the area of control. And I think on this kind of weekend, God's wanting us to say again in our posture and everything else, God, I'm not the leader. You're the leader. You're not just the figurative head. You are the functional head of my life and of this church. And we come under your lordship. And so I'm going to ask us to do something really courageous. We did this last night and people responding. It was beautiful. If you're feeling cut to the heart about what it means to follow Jesus and you know you're acknowledging your sin maybe for the first time and you're kind of saying, what do I do? I, I want to follow Jesus. I want him to be my Lord. I want to ask that your first step in coming to Jesus today would just become, just come to the front here, right up front where the steps are in front of me. You can sit, you can kneel, you can stand, but don't hesitate. I mean, this is your day. If you want to be set free and come into relationship with Jesus, right now is your time and you come. Don't hesitate. Whether in the balcony or on the, down on the floor, if you're joining us by live stream, email me. We'll get right, right to you. But don't hesitate. You come. And as those who are coming for that, I say to those who are part of the family of God, who have repented in the past, I think there's some stuff we've got to repent of. And so I'm going to be right down here with whoever wants to join me saying, I've got control issues and it's time to repent. It's time to be done with it. And declare you as Lord again. And if that's you, I'm calling you to do the exact same thing. Join me at the front. Whether from the balcony or on the floor, right now. If God's convicting your heart, don't hesitate. Don't wait. You stand up right where you are. And just come join me at the front. And we're going to pray together. doesn't matter what other people think. There's no image management going on. You just come. You know there's a control issue and it's time to surrender and say, God, again, you're Lord, not me. Yeah, if you're coming from the balcony, we'll wait and take your time. If you're one of the people, your heart's beating fast and your palms are sweaty and everything else like that and you're nervous, it's okay. That's part of being cut to the heart. You just come. It's okay, we'll take our time. Amen. Amen. You should be so courageous. Let me pray for us. Here's what I'm going to ask. Those who have come forward, just wait for someone to come join you. I'll ask Ruben again, Pastor Chris, uh, Leanne maybe, to come and pray. Sylvia, can I get you to help? And Sam, just come join somebody. Susanna, I see you over there. Can you come just link up with somebody? We just want to make sure that everybody that wants to be prayed for and be ministered to has somebody to, to see them today. Peter, uh, 
Peter Pascal Van Alphen. We want to just come, um, just come here. Sorry. Just making sure everybody has someone to be with them. Thank you. Father, by work of your grace and of your mercy, for every single person who just simply acknowledges, God, I need you. I'm done controlling. I'm done being leader of my life. God, you come upon us with your power and your mercy and your spirit. And God, we are so grateful today. And I pray that for every point of ministry that's happening right now, both up here in the seats, for those online, that this is a day of surrender, that we never forget the milestone day that says, God, I'm repenting, I'm letting go. It's all for you. And so I bless each one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as you are well ministered to in the moments to come, that you would find the freedom of Christ and be absolutely set free. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You folks just hang here. Everybody, would you stand? I'm going to send you with a benediction. And I would just invite you to turn to the person with you. Have a word of prayer. It's not too late. If you want to be prayed for, if you want to be blessed, if you have a need, just come on up. I'll be right down here. But now, church, go in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that when we turn to him, he is already pursuing us with love. He's never against you. He's for you. Just look at the cross. It's this picture of being for you. He's not against you. He's not angry at you. He's ready to set you free. So go in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a great week. God bless.